0: High-five somebody next to you and say, I feel the Spirit moving. Yeah, thank you, Jesus. Amen, amen. Before we dismiss, you can be seated. Before we dismiss our uh, classes, children, teens, and all, uh, I just want to mention we did have a couple of leaks, but fear not. We have a warranty. Hallelujah. They was here today working. They'll be here tomorrow. Should have it all finished. Uh, and it was only about five or six tiles, where last time was 119. So, you know, praise the Lord, wasn't as bad, but uh, they are getting that done. So uh, the, the, the Children's Ministries knows that one of the rooms is unavailable tonight, so um, you guys have already worked around that, and so thank you. Uh, but that should be up and running completely with no problems by Sunday. So thank you, and uh, hallelujah, praise God. Looking forward to what God's going to do when we gather Sunday. Amen. Exciting things are happening. Uh, Pastor Trevor, did you announce how many Bible studies we had? You did not. 32 as of tonight. That's more than one per day already in the month of January. If we stay at this same rate, we will teach 509 people a Bible study this year. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty awesome. So uh, praise the Lord for that. Anyway, somebody, I think it was Sister Kara said overflow amen overflow let it be lord amen so at this time we'll go ahead and dismiss our our children's ministry and our student ministries god bless all of you of course as well our nursery thank you for all of our staff and help we appreciate your work amen and amen all of you joining us online thank you for tuning in and being here and we appreciate you those of you that are homesick tonight uh, or otherwise we miss you and we can't wait to see you sunday for everyone that's in here, please join me, if you would, in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're going to start at verse 50, and I'm going to read uh, through 58 for our text tonight, and then dive right in. I don't want to scare anybody. I usually have about anywhere from 14 to 16 pages of notes. I have 21 tonight, so um, might mean we're here till midnight. I don't know. We'll see. Um, you know... I, I it's, it's interesting how that, you know, sometimes people want their team to go into overtime and win or, you know, encore at the concert. But, you know, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. I'll do my best Sister release. I'll try my best, amen, to rush through here tonight. Hallelujah. First Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Neither does corruption inherit corruption, excuse me, incorruption. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed for this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your sting? O oh, grave, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be you steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, forasmuch as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And for just a few minutes of your time tonight, I'm going to continue our reaffirming the fundamental series in tonight's title is Jesus is coming quickly. Amen. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. It is anointed and appointed for this hour. I pray now you would help me to walk in your spirit and not in my flesh. Open our understanding that we might hear and comprehend and apply your word in the name of Jesus, we pray. And if you're going to help me teach and preach, would you say amen? Amen. And if you're not, I hope you say amen anyway. Hallelujah. In addition to our text tonight, which was written by the Apostle Paul. Paul also referred to the, the mystery of the coming of the Lord in Ephesians one seven through fourteen, and John mentioned it in Revelation ten verse seven. Besides these, the Bible is replete with thousands. In fact, about thirty two hundred to be exact, verses explaining that Jesus Christ is coming again. If you want to do a little bit of math, there, there's about four hundred prophecies for the first coming, Calvary, the tomb and 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 his ascension resurrection ascension there's about 3200 that's 8 times more for the second coming in the final chapter of the bible john records jesus saying he is coming quickly three times verse 7 verse 12 and verse 20 and so since jesus is coming quickly the bible tells us that we must abide in him so that when he comes we will be able to stand before him confidently amen and not Feel and that our sins have gone with us rather, the second coming of Jesus Christ is so prevalent that all but three books of the New Testament mention it. The three that do not refer to it are Philemon, Second John, and third John. and if you know anything about those books, they're one chapter books. I think Second John and Third John together only have like twenty five verses total. Uh, Philemon, I think, is about twenty or so verses so Uh, The three smallest or of the smallest books are the ones that don't refer to the coming of the Lord. From the thousands of prophecies that reveal Jesus' second coming, you discover that he's going to return the clouds in like manner. The angel says that to them in Acts 1.11. Just as you've seen him go up, he will return in like manner. You find out that he'll come with a loud trumpet blast. The church, which is God's elect, must remember that our citizenship, Philippians says, is in heaven, and therefore we look forward to the day that we will be transformed completely into His image. We must put our mind upon the things that are above, anticipating the day when Jesus appears. That's Colossians 3. Some passages also include admonishment that we should also live holy and godly lives in anticipation of His coming. That's in Titus chapter 2, 2 Peter chapter 3, and 1 John chapter 2, just to name a few. Other passages also reveal that you must not be deceived by any means or by any man regarding what must precede Christ's coming. Jesus himself said this in Matthew 24, verses 4 and 5, verse 11 and verse 24, and Paul wrote it in 2 Thessalonians 2. Many of Jesus' parables also explicitly and implicitly will reveal His return. In one of them, Jesus taught, everyone was to work until He had returned. That's in Luke 19. In the parable of the servants, Jesus said this, Blessed are those servants whom the Lord, when He shall come, shall find watching. And that doesn't just mean like this, are you coming yet? But watching is serving or doing or acting. And that's in Luke 12:37. So watching amen, and serving precede what we are to do while we wait for Jesus to return and rapture the redeemed. So with all of that, we want to look at some scriptures tonight that explain uh, what will happen when Jesus comes, okay? The first thing, and I've already read it uh, as our text, but will be changed, in 1 Corinthians 15, and specifically 51 and 52, we find that we'll be changed in the moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. Now, I used to believe years ago growing up that you would blink and open your eyes and you're in heaven, uh, but that's not what it says. It doesn't mean that you'll, you'll, you won't be here in, in a split second. It means you'll be changed in that nanosecond of a blink uh, of the eye. And so the changing is the glorification process. Now, how many of you remember that from the new birth lesson a couple of weeks ago? Justification, sanctification, glorification. This process of being changed that is written about here in Corinthians is that glorified element where we're now freed from the presence of sin forevermore. It is the final down payment of salvation when Jesus comes and glorifies His church. The next thing we want to understand about this mystery, you might call it, and when I say mystery, again, understand, it doesn't mean it's ominous and we can't understand it. Mystery means it has been explained, and like Paul said, behold, I show you or explain to you a mystery. Um, The other verse I mentioned was Ephesians chapter 1, 7 through 14. Allow me to read that for you. Ephesians 1 7 through 14, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ. That verse 10 there is what he's talking about or what I'm talking about, gathered together. That's the coming of the Lord. He's gathering together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. In whom also have we obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of His will, that we should be to the praise of His glory, who first trusted in Christ, whom you also trusted, after that you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and whom also, after that you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession, under the praise of His glory. So what these verses are saying is, when He comes, He's gathering together in one It'll be that final down payment, as I've already mentioned, the uh, earnest of our inheritance, that redemption of the purchased possession. We have already been saved. We're the elect. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So you see in these verses, you have uh, the element of the one God, of course, because he's the one coming. You have the element of uh, salvation and, and the new birth. You have the element of the second coming very specifically here. Amen. He will gather together in one all things in Christ. That's important, and we're going to get to that a little bit later, but let me just throw this out here as a little sneak preview of the next few minutes, what you're going to hear. But gathering together in one coincides with the, with the wealth of Scripture that indicates that there's one church. There's neither Jew nor Greek, bond or fee, uh, free, uh, male nor female. We're all one in Christ. And so, From the first person that spoke in tongues in the upper room to the last person that will speak in tongues and be baptized and all of that, that is the church. That's the elect. Doesn't matter what ethnicity, doesn't matter what century, doesn't matter on what continent they lived. Every person that that has experienced that new birth experience and has lived holy and and hears that trumpet and meets Jesus, that's a part of the church, including those who are dead in Christ. And so when he's gathering together in one, that's what he is discussing and, and pointing to. Another element of the coming of the Lord is the word finished, and, and specifically related to the mystery, the element of, of that word mystery. Revelation 10:7 says, But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, what does the seventh angel do? He sounds the seventh trumpet. It's the final trumpet. It's the last trump that we read about. It's the trump of God that Paul writes about in in 1 Thessalonians. So in the voice, in the days of this voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished as he hath declared to his servants, the prophets. So just as Jesus fit every prophecy of the New Testament that, that, you know, he was to come. Born in Bethlehem, of the tribe of Judah, uh, born of a virgin, all of those variables, every one. He wasn't just 99% or even 99.9. He fulfilled all of them. That's why He could say to them, I have fulfilled the law and the prophets, uh, and, and including the, the wealth of all of those scriptures. Equally, He will fulfill His word when He comes again, and it will be finished. Those 3,200 approximately prophecies that are pointing to His second coming will also be fulfilled. Why do I know this? Because God can't lie. Titus 1, 2. He can't lie. John ten thirty five. Scripture cannot be broken. So just as He fulfilled then, He will fulfill again. And just as He said, it is finished. On Calvary, there will be an element, even though he may not say that, the finished element will, of course, be at his second coming. Furthermore, Proverbs 30, verse 5 says, Every word of God proves true. Hallelujah. Now, another thing we have to understand about the coming of the Lord is it's a one-time event, just as Calvary was a one-time event. Hebrews 9, 28. I'm going to read this from the English Standard Version. It says, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, that's Calvary, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who were eagerly waiting for Him. That's the second coming. His first coming, He dealt with sin. He became the supreme sacrifice for sin. The Bible says He was the one sacrifice for sin's forever. You can't improve on Calvary. It's, it always will be. It always has been. Perfect. We don't need to improve upon it. It's perfect as is. Neither do we have to sacrifice him repeatedly. And Hebrews brings this out. Just like the priest had to go in repeatedly with the sacrifice, we don't have to do that with Jesus. And although we celebrate communion... And although we preach about the cross, not just on Easter, but on other times, it doesn't mean we crucify him again. It doesn't mean he rises again. That was a one and done moment. Here's what's interesting. The element where it says once, and Jude even says earnestly contender the faith once for all in in the actual uh, Greek there, once for all delivered to the saints. That once for all element, both in Jude and in Hebrews means this, once for all time, Once for all sin, and once for all people. In other words, the people that in the last few weeks have either received the Holy Spirit and or been baptized here at the Church of Omaha, the blood still works for them. Amen. And if tonight somebody walks into the church and says, I want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and they repent, and God fills them with the Holy Spirit, and they are baptized in His name... They too, the blood will still work. It's a once for all. If a prisoner on death row in some jail somewhere tonight repents and, and a chaplain baptizes him in Jesus' name and he fills the Holy Ghost, it doesn't matter what his crime was. The blood still works once for all time, once for all people, once for all sin. Well, equally, he will come one more time. Not to deal with sin this time, but rather to bring salvation to those who eagerly await Him. He came as the Lamb of God to be slain. This time He's coming as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. So, beware of any doctrines of men or devils that creates two different comings of Jesus Christ, even if one is secret or in the air or private. The Bible explains, and also not just Hebrews 9, but also in Hebrews 12, that He will come once more. In fact, Hebrews 12 says it this way, and I know we don't use the screen on uh, uh, Wednesday nights, but Hebrews 12, verse 26, talking about God whose voice shook the earth, talking about when He uh, spoke the commandments into existence, saying yet, once more. I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. He's talking about the second coming once more. And this word yet once more signifies the removing of those things that are shaken. He's talking about the coming of the Lord because he actually ends that context in a couple of verses by saying, for our God is a consuming fire. What does he do when he shakes the earth at his coming? He destroys this earth with great fiery wrath. And so once more, he's only coming one more time. Another principle that we have to understand about the coming of the Lord is this, everyone will see Him. Here's what's interesting. That right now, unless you are on some device or television or something, is impossible. But it was even more impossible 10 or 50 or 100 years ago. It's now that much more possible that anybody anywhere on the planet, either visibly or through an image of a screen, could see the coming of the Lord. But I don't think it's going to be a screen. I think somehow, since he fills the heavens, the Bible says, Solomon said the heavens of the heavens can't contain him, and the fact that it's going to be so dark, the whole earth, not just half of it, because it's nighttime, the Bible talks about the brightness of his coming. I have wondered if if it's somehow going to be a way that everybody sees Him. But this is what Scripture says, so let's just read Scripture. Revelation 1, verse 7. Behold, He cometh with the clouds. There's another proof of what the angel said in Acts and what Jesus Himself said in Matthew. Behold, He cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see Him, and they also which pierced Him, and all kindreds of the earth shall well because of Him. Even so, amen. Those born again who are enduring to the end will be lifting up their heads, looking up as their redemption draws near. But at the same time, those who have taken the mark of the beast and rejected Christ will be crying out for the rocks to fall upon them, afraid of the coming fiery judgment of Jesus Christ. And that's in Luke 23:30 as well as Revelation 6:16. 6, Everyone will see the king. But not everyone will enter eternity with the king. He's also coming as a thief in the night. This does not mean that the church will be surprised because, besides Jesus, who says it, Peter, Paul, and John all write about it using the analogy of the thief in the night 2 Peter 3, Revelation 16. But when Paul writes about it in 1 Thessalonians 5, he said, But you are not of the night, you're the light. It's not going to take you by surprise. And so thief in the night doesn't mean we're, we're going to be unaware of its coming. He's coming as a thief for the wicked. They'll be surprised. They'll be taken by surprise. But the church, the Bible calls us a city set on a hill. The Bible calls us the light of the world, the salt in the earth of the uh, earth and the light of the world. We will know he's coming and anticipate it and will not be surprised. Just moments before Jesus comes... And what I'm about to tell you, you can find in Isaiah 13, 10 through 16, Joel 2, 29 through 31, Matthew 24, 29 through 31, Acts 2, 19 through 20, and Revelation 6, 12 through 17, as well as a few other places, but those are just a handful I want to mention. What I'm about to say is in each one of these verses... Just before Jesus comes, the sun will stop shining, the moon will not give its light and turn to blood, all the stars will fall from heaven, the mountains will melt like wax, the islands will float out to sea, and all that is in the heavens and on earth will shake violently. Yeah. And all them scriptures, Old and New Testament, all prophesy it. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the clouds. And the brightness of his coming will be the greatest light like unlike any you've ever seen as he returns. Acts one eleven reveals this as does 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 8. God will silence the scoffers. I remember a few years ago maybe you've seen some of them. Those black um, uh, billboards and and it's a statement and then God is the one making the statement. And the one I saw one time was I don't believe in you either God. (laughs) You know. Yeah, well, he'll silence the scoffers when he comes. And he will pour out his wrath on the wicked. But the righteous will receive their eternal reward. And let me tell you, it will be worth it all. Every trial, every test, every ridicule, all the scoffing, all the suffering, all the pain, all the discomfort, anything and everything... It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. The Bible says we will see Him and be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. 1 John 3, 2. And what a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see. Mm. Amen. The blessed hope of the second coming will not disappoint. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I can't wait to see Jesus. Hallelujah. Why don't we just thank the Lord for a moment? Oh, come on. Let's just thank Him for a moment. Hallelujah. Amen, amen. Mm. Wish God would just stop the clock for a minute. (laughs) The Bible tells us he's coming for a bride. How do I know this? Well, because when the question was asked of Jesus at the beginning of Matthew 24 and he starts answering it, if you have a Bible that's red letter edition, you'll notice that even though chapter 24 ends and 24 begins, it's still in red. And basically, the difference in chapter 24 and 25 of Matthew is this 24 is the literal, the literal answer. The abomination of desolation, uh, all the different signs, his coming. He, at the end, he starts giving a little bit of allegory. He uses Noah. He gives a little parable about the servants and the wicked one, you know, and oh, my Lord delays his coming. And, and, and he starts to shift because now from that point into 25, he's giving you the analogy or the, the metaphors. And so the first parable he tells in Matthew 25 is the parable of the 10 virgins. We know from the book of Revelation it's the marriage supper of the Lamb. So, in other words, we know this is a wedding that's going to happen. Here's what's interesting about the 10 virgins. And I've preached on this before, so I'll, I'll, I'll kind of run quickly through it, but it bears repeating. They're all 10 virgins, indicating the pure church, indicating they're at the right place. They're, they're saved, they're filled, they, 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 they believe in Jesus, they've, they've been baptized, they're born again. They all sleep. This is interesting. Even the five wise sleep and slumber because the Lord delayed His coming. They all had lamps, but only five had oil in their lamps. I like to liken it to this. The lamp can be the religion, the element of what we do, the spiritual disciplines, the daily living for God. That's the lamp. But only five of them had oil. And in other words, only five of them had the Spirit, had the anointing, were activating that and keeping it filled. And when the call went forth at midnight that the bridegroom comes, the five foolish and the five wise awake, the five wise are able to trim their wicks and light their lamp because they have oil. The five foolish cannot. Can we borrow some of yours? No. Well, you can't have my Holy Ghost no more than I can have yours. You've got to have your own experience. Go and buy from those in the market, right? While they're gone to buy, the bridegroom comes. But they're left out. And so this is going to be a wedding. And it's going to be a wedding for people who are prepared. In other words, when when the trumpet sounds, that's not a time to rush to church and repent and pray through. In other words, you need to live prayed through. You need to live prayed up amen? For one thing, none of us know when God's coming for us. I went to back out of my driveway today, and I stopped as I normally do to make sure the garage door is, you know, shutting, but I didn't stop. And I kept sliding. And there was a bus coming around the corner. I'm like, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. (laughs) Thankfully, the bus was slow, and I was able to you know, get back up and salt the driveway. And then I looked down the road and two people had gone off the road. We have a little curve and they took it a little bit too fast. And one of them went up into a snowbank, almost hit the mailbox. So me and a neighbor were going down there and we're helping clean them out and get them out. And I'm like, oh dear Jesus, amen. Yeah, I wasn't stopping, but I'm sharing that to say, you know, I don't know that the bus, if it would have hit me, it would have killed me. But I don't know when God's going to call my number is my point. I better be ready at all times. Okay. All right. The Bible uses a phrase in both Old and New Testaments. Uh, Old Testament, you'll see that it says the day of the Lord. The New Testament also says this, but sometimes the day of Christ. It's not two different days. Okay? It's, it's the same day because Jesus Christ is Lord. Paul, Peter said that. This same Jesus, God has made both Lord and Christ. So... You know, if it's day of Christ, day of Lord, it's the same person, Jesus Christ. I'm only going to read one, but there's many. Again, all through the prophets and all of the Old Testament and and in the New, there are this phrase. You see it over and again. Sometimes it does point to the first coming. And I hesitate to use the word clue because the Bible is not like, you know, a a code book or something. But a, a way to understand that is if you're reading the Old Testament and you see language that indicates grace and redemption and mercy and hope, that's the first coming. That's what happened at the first coming. But if you see wrath and anger and fire and destruction, that's the second coming. So it's kind of an easy way to, to do that. But anyway, Peter says this in 2 Peter 3, 9-14, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is suffering to, to usward not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Thank the Lord. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness? By the way, as of this point, we have hit on literally the other three fundamentals, the oneness, holiness, and new birth. And I'm going to show you something about that here in a little bit, and then even next week as we get ready to do our um, Q&A panel. Looking for and hasting to the coming day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, be diligent that you may be found of Him in peace, without spot, and blameless." The first two chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2, and the last two, Revelation 21 and 22, are the only perfect chapters in the Bible, and the reason I say that is in chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis and 21 and 22 of Revelation, there is no devil, there is no sin, there is no pain, there is no grief, suffering, and all that goes with that. At the beginning of chapter 3, you see Satan slithering into the garden. And what does he do? In one single visit, he tempts, he causes division, and that disobedience brings shame, guilt, fear, anxiety, death, and evil, and wickedness. The fourth chapter of Genesis escalates to murder, and by the time you reach the sixth chapter, God is repenting that he made man in the first place. But God had a plan, amen, even before creation, and so I'm thankful that God manifested Himself in flesh. And just as He had a plan then with the ark and Noah to save them, so now He is the ark of, of our salvation and He has a plan where we can be saved. And now the church eagerly awaits the day He comes. Let me say this though. When Jesus comes, He will severely judge those who have rejected Him and taken the mark of the beast. This will happen at a place called Armageddon where the Bible says the blood will flow to the horse's bridle. That's about three to four feet. I have seen the Valley of Megiddo. It is a very wide, long, and big valley. There's four mountaintops that that create the bowl effect, and I don't even know the dimensions. I don't want to even guess, but it is massively huge. It will become a lake of blood. I'm not trying to be gross. I'm just showing you what the Bible says. The treading out of the wine press prophesied in the Old Testament, and again, many places, but Isaiah 63 is one of them, and and also prophesied in Revelation 14 and 19 is what David actually saw in Psalm 110. And, and he prophesies it as well. This treading of the wine press, if you know what they, that is, uh, either either a stone rolls over the grapes and crushes them, and the, of course the juice comes out, or sometimes they, they, they step on them with their own feet and crush them, and the juice comes out. And of course, typical grapes will produce a reddish color uh, grape juice. And, and so that's what he's saying. It's the treading out of the wine press, whereas like literally God is just trampling upon them in the blood is flowing. I'm not trying to be rated R or make anybody sick, but it's in your Bible. And so just as the first coming was prophesied and it happened and it was fulfilled, so also the second coming will happen. And when Jesus returns, I know I've said this before, but it bears repeating tonight. It will be a day of rejoicing for the righteous, but a day of weeping and wailing for the wicked. When he comes back, he will separate sheep and goats, saved and damned, wheat from the chaff. We see this in Revelation, or excuse me, Matthew 25, 31 through 46. That's why we need to make sure that our calling and election is sure. That's why we need to be diligent so that we don't fall and so that we have an entrance into the everlasting kingdom of Jesus Christ. I mentioned Noah briefly a moment ago, but in that moment after they had got on the ark and the door was finally shut, God shut the door. And let me just say this, when God shuts a door, nobody can open it equally, when God opens a door, no man can shut it. And so, once that door was shut, the Bible says that all the fountains of the deep erupted. If you've ever seen a geyser, if you've ever seen a spring uh, coming up from the earth, every one of them erupted and spewed water as high as they could shoot up. At the same time, there was a seventh layer of water. uh, 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 We now have six layers of atmosphere, but there was a seventh layer, uh, this canopy of water, the firmament of From Genesis, and it fell to the earth, flooding the earth. The Bible says it covered, the waters covered every mountain by 15 cubits I have a question I wonder if there were any people able to get to high ground hoping to jump onto the ark hoping to catch a ride did any of them cry out to, in fear praying asking for one last chance to get on the ark there's no scripture that exists to prove or disprove these questions and 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 you know you can assume or whatever with me but I believe some may have wished that they had heeded the call to get on the ark and it will be the same thing when the last trumpet sounds I believe there are going to be those that hear it and realize oh I should have done that I remember a few years ago as a young man, I had a dream and I saw people running to the church I'm going to pray through tonight and that was when the Lord came and it scared me and it it shook me. Amen. I want to be ready and I pray to God everybody that I've ever known will be ready. I pray my worst enemy will be ready. I don't want anybody to go to hell. I don't want anybody to suffer the wrath of God because as the prophets asked, who can stand at the indignation of the Lord and the question is obvious no one hallelujah oh God tragically some will wish for the mountains to fall on them and hide them from the wrath of God it has been asked why would a loving God send anyone to hell but that is the wrong question because if you read this book from cover to cover you will find the love story of God reaching for his people forgiving time and again and so the better question is why would anyone choose hell over a loving God So with all of that, when is Jesus coming? Referring to His second coming, Jesus said these words in Matthew 24, 36, But of that day and hour knows no man, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. This verse follows a parable from Jesus about a fig tree blooming, And everybody being able to discern that summer is nigh. Then Jesus says these words, and this is before verse 36, he says, So likewise you, when you shall see these things, know that it is near, even at the doors. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. So while we will not be able to know the day nor hour specifically, we will know the season. Furthermore, this generation shall not pass is referring to the fact that those who are alive, to see all the signs that he's prophesied there in Matthew, not the ones before verse 15, okay, verses like 6 through uh, 14, you know, wars, rumors of wars and all that, those aren't signs of the times. Those have been happening before Jesus and after Jesus, and they will continue to happen. I'm talking about the signs beginning at verse 15 with the, where he says the, the uh, abomination of desolation. Those signs. The generation's alive to see that. That generation shall not pass. Well, it's not that we have to prove Jesus because he's right, period. But one way we can understand that is, for one thing, the Antichrist only has three and a half years of power. You can read that in Revelation. He only has 42 months of authority. So at, the, at, at most, if there is a seven-year tribulation period, at most, he's got seven years, but, you know, at the least, maximum of 42. So the generation that's alive then will see the coming of the Lord. And that's what he's referring to by season. We still won't know the day nor hour. And neither, nobody. I hope to God, nobody, if the Antichrist appears and tomorrow the abomination de- desolation takes place, gets out of calculator and says, okay, January 25th, you know, plus this, you know. Please don't do that, okay? Some of us are old enough to remember 88 reasons why the Lord's coming in 88. Well, that didn't happen. What I love about some of these so-called prophets is, oh, we were wrong, we used the, we used the wrong math, and, and they give another date. And then that's wrong. Oh, well, now we were wrong because we were looking at the Julian calendar mixed in with the Gregorian, and it's like, please, just stop. Just admit that you're a false prophet, so no man will still know the day nor hour. Not even the elect, the true church. We will know the season. We will know that time frame. But that's the generation that shall not pass. I've heard people say that they, they use that to refer to uh, Israel in 1948 when it became a nation. And, and that generation. And, and they, they calculate that the generation could be 80 years. Well, huh. I was in Israel on the 75th anniversary in 2018. You do the math. Um, we're, we're kind of there and beyond. And so, in other words, the point is it's, it's that he's referring to the generations alive at that time. And the disciples would have understood that. And I trust you do as well. The Bible tells us that when God sends forth his word, it will not return to him void, but will accomplish what he has sent to do. That's in uh, Isaiah 55, 11. The Bible says his word is forever settled in heaven, Psalm 119, 89. Again, scripture can't be broken. God can't lie. So we are able to discern all these things and know that it is near. We will not know the day nor hour, but we will be able to discern signs just like we can see a fig tree. Oh yeah, hey, it's, summer's almost here. Unlike the priests who repeatedly went in to offer sacrifices, we know Jesus' sacrifice was once for all. We know on Zechariah 3.9 that he fulfilled this prophecy because the Bible says he took away sins in one day. Hebrews 10.12, he's uh, the one sacrifice for sins forever. And so we see all this oneness. Now, the first lesson we taught in this series was on the oneness of God. But the oneness of God extends beyond his deity. There's only one church. There's many members, and, 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 but there's one body, there's one church, there's one Calvary, there's one second coming. So all of it equals together to, to prove the oneness of God. There's also one last trump. You can't have two last trumps, okay? And if there's only seven, trump, seven trumpets and they're in order, the seventh is the last. The sixth can't be the, the last trump because if, if there's one more It doesn't. The the math don't work. Does that make sense? I'm I'm not trying to be corny or stupid. I'm just trying to show you how these scriptures come together. Because here's the problem. The reason I'm doing this is here's the problem. People will take a scripture over here out of context and build a doctrine around it, and not compare it to other scriptures. And you have to take the Bible in its entirety. You have to understand. All of these scriptures. And, and here's the best way, and I've showed you this before. Brother Jeff, what am I holding? Quick, quickly. Bottle of water. Brother Josh. Anybody else? Kara. Water. Somebody else? Flavored water. Thank you. Anybody notice the color? Green. I see blue. I see propel. As I turn it, each of us could see a different reality. It's not that propel over here and green over here and water over here and flavored water over here. It's all the same thing. You have to bring all of the riders together and say, Oh, that's what they're showing us. It's like putting a puzzle together. Let me ask you this. How many of you work on puzzles? If you don't, that's okay. But a few of you, okay, great. I love it. I love puzzles too. You've worked on them before on your iPad. I've seen you mess around with them, Shannon. Amen. And so all right, so imagine this. Imagine we don't have a, uh, a picture on a box. Let's say we don't have a picture on a box tonight, we, but we have a thousand-piece puzzle, and we have a table up here, and we dump it out. Can we tell the picture by any one piece? Can we tell it by ten pieces? Now, if we had 900 pieces, could we possibly begin to make some educated guesses? Okay. Okay. That's what you have to do. You have to realize, oh, Isaiah said something. Oh, that, that's over here. Joel said something. Ooh, that goes over here. Oh, Peter said something. That's a corner piece. Ooh, Jesus said something. Look right there. And when you get it all together, oh, that's, oh my. So Isaiah and Jesus. G- you remember the, the, I'm getting ready to put it back up in my study, but remember the rainbow thing that was in, it's going to be back up soon in my study. 63,779 cross-references from Genesis through Revelation. So you have to look at everything. And that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. I'm not trying to be ignorant, foolish, or stupid, or, or you know, think that anybody's dumb whom I'm preaching to tonight. But to show you, the seventh trump is the last trump. It's the voice of the archangel of God. All of those equal the same thing. So 1 Corinthians 15, 52, 1 Thessalonians four sixteen, and Revelation 11, 15 are all talking about the same thing. The trumpet blast declaring His coming. <sighs> so since we've established all that and we've got to this point, and I've got five minutes left and six pages of notes. Did Jesus tell us when He would return? Yes. Matthew 24, 29 through 31. In His own words. After, immediately after the tribulation of those days, shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken, and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then shall the tribes of the earth mourn. They shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And He shall send His angels with a great sound of a trumpet. And they shall gather together His elect from the four winds from one of heaven to the other. If there's only one second coming, and it's going to be on the clouds, and it's the Son of Man, and it's angels and a trumpet, and Jesus said immediately after the tribulation, When Mark and Luke both record this, Mark 13 and Luke 21, Mark adds something, and they will both say the same thing. Mark adds something at at verse 37. He says, and what I say unto you, I say unto all, watch. That proves it's not just for the Jews, but for everybody. Amen. Now, on the day of Pentecost, Peter quotes Joel. So we got Peter. We have Joel. I've just showed you that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record. The Bible tells us that with the principle of out of the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. What does it mean when you have five? Just, just asking. The reason that I referenced earlier about the context and things being taken out of context is this. I don't have time, not just tonight, because it would be a whole other lesson anyway. But I can show you historically, in ancient writings, that there is not a single mention of the phrase pre-tribulation until 1830. When a man by the name of John Nelson Darby who was an unteachable heretic created a false doctrine called dispensationalism who even our very own general superintendent says you cannot work it into and make it fit with the apostles' doctrine. He created this dispensationalism and he created a pre-tribulation rapture theory. And for the first time in the history of the church it was mentioned. And sadly, it has infiltrated Christianity across the board. Protestants and evangelicals, apostolics, all alike. But prior to that, it was never mentioned. And I have done my own research and read commentaries from the 1500s and the 1600s and the 1700s It's not there until 1830. I want to challenge you tonight to do something. I want you to be like the Bereans. I I want a church of followers in the sense of we follow Jesus and you follow me as I follow Christ. But hear this, if I ever stop following Christ... Pray for me and follow somebody who is. Because I don't want you to follow me to hell if I don't repent. This is not a cult. Okay? But be like the Berean Jews. Search the scriptures daily. I have. And I'm not, I am asking you to believe me, but I'm also asking you to dig in. I've written three books about it and I'm writing a fourth. I'll I'll make you a deal. I'll sell them to you for cost, if it'll help you. Serious. You can look at my research. You can you can study it for yourself. I'll never forget the time that I handed it to someone, uh, my manuscript, and I said to her, I said, if you can see where I have misquoted, I promise I'll I'll shred it, throw it away, won't do it. After three chapters, she came back and said, I can't argue with the word. I'm not saying to boast of Myron, I'm saying to boast of the word of the Lord. Amen. He's coming back after the tribulation, and I want to be ready. I want to see Him when He comes. A book I read last year by Michael Brown and Craig Keener says, in one of the parts of it says this, Why do we not believe in a pre-trib rapture? Most of us would not want to live in a building where all the screws and nails that held it together were loose. So, Why would we want to believe a doctrine in which every single verse used in support is loose, that is, out of context? Uh, Both of these men have, you know, doctorate degrees in in studying the Bible. Um, And I do agree with them, because up until about 2002, I believed the pre-trib doctrine. And God began to deal with me. And I began to ask questions and questions led to more questions, and I wound up pushing all the books away and saying, okay, God, speak to me. And he did. As the first coming of Jesus was prophesied and fulfilled, so also the second coming of Jesus is prophesied and will be fulfilled. He will return, and I will be ready to meet him, whether I'm the dead in Christ rising or still alive and remain. In fact, if I die... I want everybody to know this, and that way I don't have to write it in a will, so all of you will know. You can help my, my, my wife, remember, if, if I go before her. There was an elderly saint that was dying, and on her, nearing her death, she requested an appointment with her pastor. After going through all the details, and I want this set of songs sang, and I want this, you know, I want you to preach, you know, the message, blah, blah, blah and read Psalm 23 whatever all that was she got that all explained and she said would you do me a favor though pastor she goes a lot of people want their bible buried with them i don't and he said okay so i want you to have it and use it or give it to a young man or woman that you're you're equipping and and pass it on to them i want that bible to live on and he said, okay okay sister she said but i do have one last request and he said what's that she says when you uh, bury me would you as they fold my hands would you have them put a fork in my hands a, a fork and she said yes please in fact I have one and he she handed it to him this one right here he, he said okay why she says well see growing up we were poor and uh, we didn't have very many dishes and so when supper was done mama would say keep your fork because dessert's coming and that was the best thing. She said, I want my fork because the best is coming. Well,